You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It has been a profoundly sad day for the Baltimore Ravens organization. This morning, the Ravens announced that outside linebacker Jalen Ferguson, a former third-round pick, died at the age of 26. And then just a couple hours ago, Tony Siragusa, known as the Goose, who played for 12 seasons in the NFL, was a member of the Baltimore Ravens Super Bowl-winning defense in 2012 died at the age of 55 years old on Wednesday. No cause of death in either Siragusa or Ferguson's death, but a tremendously sad day for the Baltimore Ravens organization. You're listening to Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Courtney Cronin, Amber Wilson sitting in for Sarah and Jason on this Wednesday evening. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Meanwhile, not far away from the Baltimore Ravens facility, uh, the nation's capital, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell testified on Wednesday before members of Congress that a hearing by the House Committee on Oversight and Return, the long investigation into the Washington Commanders organization directed at owner Daniel Snyder uh, for workplace widespread workplace misconduct is now ongoing in front of Congress. And there's a lot to get into here about what happened, what was said, what was not said, and who was not present for Wednesday's hearing. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Amber, um, the biggest thing that I took away from this was that the committee itself found out that Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders, interfered with the NFL's investigation and Washington's own internal investigation into this widespread uh, workplace misconduct, what have you. Um, And he directed his own shadow investigation, which, you know, essentially would interfere and undermine some of the findings. And this congressional committee found him uh, liable for this. Obviously, Daniel Snyder was not in attendance at the congressional hearing on Wednesday. But it just feels like it's it's strike after strike for, for Daniel Snyder. And if you were to explain this to somebody who doesn't know football, and somebody who has no clue about what's going on with the Washington Commanders, you almost find yourself having to like pause and realize, like, really, we keep letting the Washington Commanders, we keep letting an organization get away with this thing, and then it's the next thing, and it's the next thing. And it just feels like this has all come to a head where you've got the commissioner testifying in front of Congress, but no resolution yet again. What struck me about this was just the apparent conflict of interest for Roger Goodell, which we know exists, right? Where certainly he's the commissioner of the NFL and you want to do what's best for the NFL if you're Roger Goodell, but you also work for the owners. And so in effect, Daniel Snyder is your boss. And you saw that make an appearance even here, Courtney, where you mentioned that it becomes apparent that Daniel Snyder in some way tried to discredit the people that were accusing him. He tried to apparently influence the investigative team in certain manners, like you mentioned. And Roger Goodell said at these hearings that an alleged shadow investigation or any of these things, if any action was taken to discourage people from coming forward, that would be inappropriate. But of course, he answers all these questions with sort of a a very 
PC approach, right? Because he has to be careful what he says, because again, still works for the owners, still essentially works for Daniel Snyder. And that's really the whole thing of all of this is that it's a very complicated situation when a lot of people, I think, Courtney, expect that Roger Goodell can just get rid of Daniel Snyder as an owner. And that ain't how any of this works at all. And that was what was so apparent here in front of the House Committee. Yeah, that was what he was pressed on by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who in this exchange got pretty heated with Roger Goodell asking why he can't just remove Daniel Snyder. I have not seen a workplace in the NFL um, that is anywhere near what we saw in the context of that period of time for the Washington commanders. Yes or no, are you willing to do more? Yes, of course I'm willing to do more. I never said that we were going to stop. I actually said the opposite. But we you will have the authority to recommend that Dan Snyder be removed as a team owner. Okay, the, you the, can the, recommend the gentlelady's time be has as a expired. The gentleman may answer her question. Your time has expired. You may answer her question. Should Dan Snyder I, be I removed? I think I'm good. Remove him. Will you remove him? I don't have the authority to remove him, Congresswoman. That was Commissioner Roger Goodell in an exchange with uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, who was part of this House Oversight Committee. And she kind of put herself in a tough spot there, Amber, as you pointed out when we were listening to that beforehand, that she got very emotional and she interrupted Roger Goodell. Then she ended up getting interrupted because her time was up in asking the question. So she rephrased it from asking about, will you do more and why can't you remove him from office to will you remove him? So it gave Roger Goodell an out there because technically he does have the ability to officially recommend that the owners vote on removing Daniel Snyder as the owner of the Washington Commanders, but only that can only happen if three quarters, so 24 out of 32 owners, for the majority vote of those fellow owners, vote to get Daniel Snyder out of Washington. And you can understand why that is so rare to occur, that you get 75% of the owners to agree to do that because they're concerned then about their own futures, Courtney. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And and it has led all of us uh, without with, to sort of maybe recklessly assume, but it feels reasonable at this point to sort of recklessly assume that there's more to this and that maybe there's more skeletons in closets all around the NFL. And if you're an owner and you're concerned about something that you have in your past, whatever it may be, even if it's quite different from what Daniel Snyder, what we've seen make an appearance here with Daniel Snyder and the Washington Washington Commanders, if you're concerned at all that Daniel Snyder is aware of those things, because of course we know there is a camaraderie between these owners and a brethren amongst these owners. And if you're aware at all, Courtney, that he knows these things, that he essentially knows where the bodies are buried, mm-hmm. you could be Uh, you could be reasonably concerned then about uh, ousting him from the NFL. And we've seen for the last 20 plus years with Daniel Snyder, controversy after controversy, and then him just not being a good owner in in many, many ways, and including on the football field. So that's a factor as well. But these owners are very reluctant to get rid of him. And it feels like there's got to be reasons for that, Courtney. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Courtney Cronin, Amber Wilson sitting in for Sarah and Jason. So the NFL 
had an investigation. It conducted its own, led by attorney Beth Wilkinson, um, and they determined that Snyder had actually been held accountable. How? Well, the NFL's not going to release all of those findings because for some reason they felt that that could potentially become a snowball effect into something that could get even more out of control than what they wanted to handle. But what we do know is that Daniel Snyder was not there. He claimed that he had overseas business uh, and was worried about, you know, the, the true due process taking place. But he's going to be commissioned by uh, this commission to, to subpoenaed rather to show up uh, at some point to give his testimony. Carolyn Maloney, who is the committee chair, uh, says that she will issue a subpoena to compel him to testify. And that would truly be the first time that we hear from Daniel Snyder in any sort of extended capacity regarding some of these allegations and you know what was going down with this workplace culture and, and everything with the Washington commanders. But one thing I found interesting as it as it pertains to this whole situation with what Roger Goodell said in his opening remarks that, quote, the workplace in Washington was unprofessional and unacceptable in numerous respects, bullying, widespread disrespect towards colleagues, the use of demeaning language, public embarrassment and harassment, end quote. And so he also detailed various charges within the organization since the initial allegations had surfaced you know, two years ago now uh, and some of the recommendations from the league, but those recommendations did not include Goodell urging owners to vote on whether uh, Daniel Snyder should be removed or not. Again, the commissioner does have power to do that. But, but it's just urging them didn't. to vote on it. I mean... That's not any real power. I don't mean to defend Roger Goodell out here. I just do think that with Roger Goodell, people are a bit unrealistic about the power that he does hold within the NFL because that power really does come from the owners. And in fact, Courtney, I don't know the answer to this. Does he actually have to initiate the vote? Like, can the owners themselves come together? I would imagine so, probably. I don't have the bylaws in front of me. I would imagine that there's some mechanism without Roger Goodell even, uh, you know, recommending that they do so that they could come together and hold that vote. There's obviously a reason that they have the entire league. And with all the findings that the NFL in its own investigation has found out on top of what the House Committee and Oversight and Reform found out that Daniel Snyder interfered with the investigation, now would be the time for Roger Goodell to invoke his authority to recommend that vote. But again, he remains silent on that issue. He was asked about it. He danced around it. And really, that is uh, that's within his his right and his prerogative because of the way that he was asked that question, but also you said it yourself, Amber. You know, we know who his bosses really are. He works for the owners, and he's not going to do anything to justify or ra- rather to uh, jeopardize that relationship considering who employs him and how much power he inevitably has. And if Daniel Snyder testifies in front of this committee, if he's subpoenaed eventually, which you mentioned, he's not going to do anything to implicate himself criminally. And arguably, all of this stuff could potentially be criminal, right? Or most mm-hmm. of it anyways. Not, you know, poor language maybe in the workplace, maybe not so much. But some of these other allegations certainly could be. Some of even the financial, you know, uh, cook in the books kind of stuff could be as well. He's not going to implicate himself in any of that stuff. He'll exercise his Fifth Amendment rights. We're not going to get much out of this. I don't know what comes from this, but it feels like the heat has been so turned up on the NFL that at some point they've got to hold that vote. Although I've thought that before. 
Plenty more to get to on the Daniel Snyder investigation with the Washington Commanders and what was said uh, via virtual hearing with Congress today from Commissioner Roger Goodell. That was Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. But coming up next, Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets are at an impasse. What happens next for the Nets and KD? That's next here, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Kyrie Irving wants something that the Brooklyn Nets, as of right now, are not willing to give him. But will the pressure of keeping Kevin Durant happy make the Nets change their mind? This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app. Courtney Cronin, Amber Wilson sitting in for Sarah and Jason. So there are a lot of teams around the league right now, Amber, according to Woj that are rooting for Irving to opt out of that $36 million contract with the Brooklyn Nets, which he's eligible to do uh, during the offseason, and leave. Uh, And he would become a free agent at that point. And then the domino effect is what these rival teams are hoping for, is that Kevin Durant would then become available via a trade because he came to Brooklyn to play with Kyrie Irving, and if he's not there, then he would apparently want out. I want to start back a couple months ago. When Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets bowed out of the playoffs after they got swept by the Boston Celtics, and Kyrie was talking big game in his post-game press conference after, you know, he really did nothing in 29 games and then wasn't able to help his team in the postseason, he was saying how he felt like they would all put their heads together and, you know, come up with an option for the future And the Brooklyn Nets looked around and said, hold my beer. You have no leverage here whatsoever, and you really did a number on us this this season. So, no, this offseason we're not going to give you the long-term extension that you're eligible for because we don't trust that you are going to be here to play for us a full season next year and then the next year and then the next year after that. In any normal situation, trying to match up Kyrie's contract with KD's contract would seem like the smart move, right? Because it would guarantee you that you would have those two players together for the foreseeable future, Courtney. However, with Kyrie Irving, it doesn't matter what contract you have with him. And that's the problem is the Brooklyn Nets now know that because they've experienced that. So they don't know if he's going to be available to them if they hand him an extension. And that's the root of all of the problems. It's also the root of the problems across the the NBA I don't know how valuable Kyrie really is now if he comes to the Brooklyn Nets and he's like hey the Los Angeles Lakers are interested in me the Nets know that's like a 30 million dollar pay cut for him sure bro go entertain that idea if you're willing to take that kind of pay cut so some of this is going to come down to the money for Kyrie Irving because the Nets know in terms of money they're in the best position to pay Kyrie Irving if he wants the max money he's going to need to agree to stay with the Brooklyn Nets under essentially their terms even if they're not willing to hand him the extension right now but maybe Kyrie has other plans from that however I do think that the bargaining position of Kyrie in terms of Kevin Durant now you're talking you know it it's not just dependent on hey these other teams around the league might be interested in me for a significant pay cut it's also though that if I do that if I do do that then Kevin Durant is going to want out and there you go now you lost your truly generational player in Kevin Durant. How do you bounce back from that? I do wonder, is there a scenario, because I haven't heard anybody talk about this. Is there a scenario 
where the Brooklyn Nets feel like they can let Kyrie walk and then still somehow build around Katie and Ky- Katie would be in on it. Like it seems very much like Katie publicly is like still all about Kyrie. I just yeah. wonder if there's anything behind the scenes where Katie was also tired of it, even though he's given us no indication of that. And he's, he's like, hey, it depends what be. else you guys can put around me. He's this guy be, is a right? competitor. This guy is all about basketball. So, you know, by way of that, you'd think he was probably frustrated as heck with Kyrie Irving this entire season in the 29 games that he was available for because of his refusal to get the vaccine uh, due to the New York City mandate, which, you know, eventually was repealed and he was allowed to play. But Katie had to show there's such a heavy load he ends up getting himself injured and they're not able to make it past the first round the only way and I say this because free agency is kind of boring this year around the NBA there's no like massive names that are out there that you could see the Brooklyn Nets going after to in the event that Kyrie does opt out and become a free agent and they would try to replace him via free agency it feels like that would have to come with a trade now this is a team that just pulled off a trade and got Ben Simmons. Again, we didn't like Kyrie Irving. Didn't see him uh, during the regular season. Didn't see Ben Simmons at all during the postseason. But they just went this route, and it feels like for every five steps they go forward, another trade would probably end up setting them back, and they just can't seem to get out of their own way. The leverage play, though, that you mentioned is keeping Kevin Durant healthy. And every step of the way thus far, Kyrie Irving has gotten his way. The Brooklyn Nets said, we don't want a part-time player. So they let Kyrie Irving sit on the bench, still pay him at that. And then eventually there's enough pressure to force New York City Mayor Eric Adams to repeal the vaccine mandate. He ends up getting to play. Well, the Nets, don't forget the Nets actually let him come back as a part-time player before the vaccine mandate. Yeah, before he was playing. They even wavered on their position. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, they've they've wavered there. So who's to say that they won't waver again? Now, will it come to the tune of four years, $198 million? That's an extension that Durant signed uh, when during the 2021 offseason with the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, reportedly Irving wants something of that magnitude. But if you can't trust the player... Why would you possibly dole out millions of dollars like that that is all guaranteed when you don't know if you're going to get Kyrie Irving for the long haul? I mean, you and I have talked about this on air for months that we're not sure if he's all in. We don't know what version of him we're going to get on a day-to-day basis, let alone a year-to-year basis. So why not go about this in the way that incentivizes the club but also incentivizes the player on a short-term deal with a lot of incentives loaded into it where he could eventually recoup those earnings just not getting the long-term extension that he wants right now. Uh, Seems like he does have some leverage, but we're going to see how the Brooklyn Nets end up playing this one. Straight ahead, we're going to be joined by front office sports NBA writer Anthony Puccio to dive a little bit more into Kyrie situation and his impasse with the Nets. That's next, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz, CSPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Courtney Cronin, Amber Wilson, sitting in for Sarah and Jason on this Wednesday evening. Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance makes bundling home and auto easy. Learn more by visiting Progressive.com. We're talking with Anthony Puccio. He covers the NBA for front office sports. And Anthony, I know that the Brooklyn Nets right now 
are kind of at an impasse with Kyrie Irving. They don't want to give him this long-term extension that he desires, and I can't fault Brooklyn for wanting to go the short-term route and load it up with incentives because it doesn't feel like Kyrie Irving is a player you can trust on more than a one-year basis and taking it one year at a time. Am I wrong for siding with Brooklyn in these initial negotiations? If it were normal circumstances, I would say, no, you're not wrong. But the person that trusts Kyrie is Kevin Durant, and, and that's the biggest repercussion in all of this, is that Kevin Durant came to Brooklyn to play with Kyrie Irving. He made that very clear. Um, and this extension that Kyrie wants to sign uh, would align with Kevin Durant's five years left in Brooklyn. So if Kyrie's gone, KD is probably on his way out too because he didn't come here to – to have Ben Simmons be his co-star. And, and and he feels at 34, he doesn't want to flame out without Kyrie Irving or without any type of superstar that he feels can help him win a championship. So Kevin Durant is a problem for the Nets in terms of their negotiating power. Anthony, is another problem for the Nets this? Because in the season, the Nets were sticking to their guns for a while, and they were not going to let Kyrie Irving be a part-time player because he wouldn't get the vaccine. And then they changed their minds on that before the vaccine mandate even changed. Does that kind of harm them here, you think, in the negotiations with Kyrie, where Kyrie's probably thinking, yeah, okay, I've seen you pretend that you're going to stick to your guns before? Yeah, I, I think I think at times the Nets can be their own worst enemy. Um, you know, obviously the Kyrie situation, James Harden situation didn't necessarily help, but uh, just not really sticking to their guns and, and, and sticking what, with what they initially decide to do. I think uh, having Kyrie sit out for all of the season and then finally saying, okay, you know, you can play part-time because things are getting tough now. Uh, that that that's collateral damage that you're doing to your organization, to to your team. Uh, it's an inconsistency, and it's 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 showing that if you're trying to make a point to your superstar player, uh, you know how serious can he take you in, in that? So I think you could even translate translate that over to these negotiation talks now, where if they're playing hardball with Kyrie, he has the leverage because he has Kevin Durant in his back pocket. So if he goes, Kevin goes. I mean the Nets are back to rebuilding. And this is an organization that does not get, get superstars in the building very often. They've had Dr. J. They had Jason Kidd 20 years ago. Uh, getting these two guys here was, was revolutionary for this organization. So, yeah, I think they've shot themselves in the foot a couple of times. Joe Sy and, and Sean Marks, they need, to get, they need to get on the same page or else, or else it's going to get ugly very, very fast. We're talking with Anthony Puccio. He covers the NBA for front office sports. And and you mentioned those two names, uh, Sean Marks and Joe Sy. Kyrie Irving also mentioned those two names in his final press conference after the Nets got swept by the Celtics in the first round. And I'm wondering, was he over his skis in that moment when he talked about what was going to happen this offseason, that those three and Kevin Durant conveniently uh, leaving out the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets in that statement. But nonetheless, he had mentioned that the four of them would put their heads together and and decide the direction to go to this offseason. And then the Nets come out, Sean Marks comes out, and says what he says about a month ago with Kyrie Irving at the forefront of it, that he wants players who want to be there. And, of course, he mentions Ben Simmons in that mix as well. But did something get lost in translation there? Was Kyrie Irving never going to be part of those negotiations in the way that he thought he was going to be? 
Well, it's, well, it's kind of odd because if you look back to last summer when Trell Marks did his uh, t- did his media day uh, press conference, he was asked about Kyrie Irving's extension and whether it would happen, James Harden, and he said, signed, sealed, and delivered. And one year later, I mean, obviously everything is completely different and flipped upside down. So um, maybe maybe Kyrie was in over his head a little bit, but I just think that from the Nets' perspective, things they they, they had one bad season, they, you know, and and obviously Kyrie is to blame for a lot of it, not getting the vaccine, not being present. But the mandate was only really in New York City and in, in Toronto. If Kyrie was basically on 28 other teams in the NBA, he would have been able to play. So I think the Nets are kind of dwelling a lot on this past season, really, really feeling it, seeing the Celtics advancing, the Warriors advance. I think it's just kind of gotten super murky for them, and and they've taken it out on Kyrie, which, again, you mentioned it it can absolutely be justified. He hasn't been present. But, you know, I think Kyrie feels, look, I came here. I brought Kevin Durant with me. I'm playing for my hometown team, um, and and, and – I, I, I should be a part of this. You know, I, I shouldn't be secluded from these decision-makings. And, and, and I don't think the Nets take him serious because, you know, obviously what happened this past year and, and, and what happened, what's basically happened since he got to Brooklyn is just he's played less than, uh, than he's played at all. Anthony Puccio from Front Office Sports joining us. So, Anthony, we've talked a lot about the poor, frankly, bargaining position of the Brooklyn Nets because of the KD factor. But let's talk about Kyrie Irving beyond just the KD factor. Does he have extra bargaining position because he's coveted around the NBA? There's a lot of rumors out there, right? But the Lakers would be a significant pay cut for him. I mean, is he actually interested in going across town or across the bridge, so to speak, to the Knicks? I mean, are any of these other potential destinations realistic for Kyrie? Well, we know that, that, again, he came to the Nets in large part because he wanted to be close to his family. He wanted to be home. So there is that aspect that, you know, the Nets know he doesn't, he doesn't want to go across the country again. He doesn't want to keep flying around. You know, I think the belief when he came to Brooklyn was that he was going to ride out probably the rest of his career here. Uh, but for his case is that he's still 30 years old when he did play a full season, which was two years ago, um, he played more than Kevin Durant and James Harden both. And he had a 50, 40, 90 season. So he's still the superstar. It's not like he's a declining star. That's, that's out of his prime. He's still in his prime. Uh, and he still wants to play in Brooklyn. So it's kind of a, it's a weird tilt where I don't necessarily think that if, if, if Kyrie didn't have KD, I don't think that he would have much leverage because he would want to stay close to home. But at the same time, again, it, it's, it's, not, it's not too hard for him to go over to L.A. and play with his old friend LeBron, uh, who he's uh, patched up his relationship with. And I don't think that money is, is the issue for Kyrie. Speaking of leverage, it doesn't feel like Kevin Durant albeit the superstar that he is, really has a lot of leverage as far as where he could be traded. If he did indeed say, hey, if you guys aren't going to give Kyrie what he wants, you're not going to keep us together. I still have four years remaining on this contract. I want to go somewhere else. So how would this work out if if it goes like the worst possible direction for the Brooklyn Nets and they end up losing both of these guys? How does it end up for Kevin Durant? Like where could you see him uh, playing next year beyond that? Well, I, I think the worst case scenario is uh, what we've been seeing with this player empowerment, what we saw with Ben Simmons with other players that have kind of just sat out or, or not been loyal to their contract. 
Um, you know, as, as far as destinations for Kevin Durant, you have to think of a contender. You have to think of a place that that could use a score uh, that's been knocking on the door. So I'm, I'm thinking about a Phoenix. Um, I'm thinking about a Miami. Uh, somewhere that, you know, again, Kevin Durant's going to be 34 next year. So he doesn't want to flame out in Brooklyn. He, he, he wants to win another ring. He wants, he wants to win another two rings. So immediately the two teams that come to mind are, are the Phoenix Suns and Miami Heat. The Brooklyn Nets, Kyrie Irving at a standstill about their future. And it, of course, affects Kevin Durant in a big way. He is Anthony Puccio covering the NBA for front office sports, joining Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson here on Spain and Fitz. Anthony, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, coming up next, do we have any clarity when it comes to Deshaun Watson's future with the Cleveland Browns, including if he'll get suspended for an entire season after news came out yesterday that he settled 20 of 24 civil suits against him. That's next, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Deshaun Watson may have settled 20 of 24 civil suits that have been levied against him, alleging sexual assault and sexual misconduct, but there are four suits that remain in the mix, and this is far from over for the Cleveland Browns quarterback. This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. She's Amber Wilson. I'm Courtney Cronin. We're sitting in for Sarah and Jason. So this news comes yesterday afternoon, and we don't know how much Amber is is in those civil suits. Tony Busby, the lawyer who's representing all 24 women in these civil cases against Deshaun Watson, would not go into specifics, which, you know, this happens with civil suits, as you know. Um, you don't really get the details. There's a lot of non-disclosure agreements. There's a whole bunch of things we'll never know detail-wise about what happened with Deshaun Watson and the masseuses that have alleged these things against him. But what we do know is that the first person to file a civil suit against him, Ashley Solis, who might have the strongest case of anyone considering Watson under oath testified um, and you know corroborated a lot of the things that she said in her initial testimony, she is not settling just yet. And she feels at least to me, it feels like she's still the linchpin in in keeping this alive and for, for Tony Busby and his clients, hoping that eventually they're going to have their chance towards due process. It just might be, you know, more than a year from now when that happens. Yeah, I don't know if I'd hold my breath, uh, Courtney. And I, I'm just being realistic because, you know, from, from a lawyer's perspective, um, which I am one, civil suits don't go to trial. I mean, that's just how it goes. And the reason that they don't is because, first of all, it's normally cheaper to settle. Uh, so there's that component. I mean, some of it comes down to that. Deshaun Watson looking at, hey, what am I going to be paying in legal fees to take this thing all the way? And then when I, what am I potentially losing at trial? And if I can go ahead and wrap up this matter now, why wouldn't I do that? And so a lot of people, I suppose, unfairly uh, attribute when people make settlements liability or even guilt because people get that confused with civil law where they assume hey Deshaun Watson settled so he must have done these things right and I've been saying since the beginning Courtney that we're never going to have an idea most likely because most likely we're never actually going to get that day in court if we're talking about civil court once it seemed like this was not going to be a criminal process I kept saying right here on air that hey this is this thing is going to take years when these 
these initial when that initial lawsuit was filed by Ashley Solis. And then, of course, that was before the other 24 women came after her. It was I was saying, hey, this is this thing's going to take years to actually play out. And and most likely what's going to happen is we're going to be talking about this for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, one day, Courtney, we're going to get a headline and it's going to be like, Deshaun Watson settled the suits and that's all we're ever going to know about it. And then life's just going to move on because those settlements are confidential and we're never going to get the terms of the settlement unless that was part of the settlement agreement. In rare instances, the settlement agreement could be dependent on, hey, we're willing to settle with you, Deshaun, but you have to go out and publicly admit you do the, you did these things. Well, he would have never agreed to that, it, frankly, in this situation if that was part of the settlement agreement because it would have implicated him criminally. And so that clearly was not part of this. Uh, we're not going to ever get more from these 20 settlements so far. And most likely, just with the statistics of how civil suits go, most likely these other lawsuits will end up settling as well before we ever get to a trial. That's probably how it's going to go. Less than 2% of civil cases ever make it to trial. And that's extends far beyond, of course, Deshaun Watson's situation, but he has a, a couple extra, you know, hundred million reasons sure. and a very high profile job to go ahead and get this thing over with where most people don't. Spain and Fitz, Courtney Crone and Amber Wilson. So we know that the NFL yesterday via spokesperson Brian McCarthy said that the settlements Deshaun Watson enacted with those 20 and 24 on Tuesday will, quote, have no impact on the collectively bargained disciplinary process. Now, the NFL has not publicly put out a timeline on what the decision's going to be, how long Deshaun Watson's going to be suspended for. I mean, I don't fi- think you're going to find anyone at this point who doesn't believe he will probably get suspended for an entire season. But if you're the NFL... I think that you're probably um, a little spooked by the whole thing because first it was 22 women. And then a month after, month plus after free agency, it was 24 women. And then there were two other women after the HBO documentary comes out and in the subsequent weeks, there were two more women who were going to file cases against Deshaun Watson. And if you're Roger Goodell, who at the end of the day has the ultimate say, he can punish Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson regardless of what comes out of this. Um, you know, because the, the NFL hired uh, federal judge Sue L. Robinson to determine if a violation occurred. So if, if she believes there is, one, then she can recommend that punishment, but Goodell um, will ultimately make that final determination. It feels like they're still waiting because every time they think that this thing's going to come to a conclusion, some new piece of information pops up. Some new person comes out saying, this is what happened allegedly with Deshaun Watson and myself when he came to me requesting uh, massage services. Like, I feel like the NFL is still holding its breath, thinking that there might be more information to come out, which is why at this point, in spite of him settling, it's not anywhere close to over because the the civil suits and all of that is one thing. I think the NFL is expecting more is going to come out. Although we did get the information that the NFL was nearing an end of its investigation. So if they do conclude their investigation, then presumably they have to move forward with whatever the punishment stemming from that investigation yeah, is going to be. Yeah, but they had said that they were going to do that. And then those two other women, which would have made it 26, I don't believe that either of them filed. Right. Um, that came out. And I, I just feel like if you're Roger Goodell in this situation, 
you've heard what Cleveland said. Cleveland said, yeah, like this is, you know, they didn't obviously talk to any of the women, as we know. But Cleveland had probably assured Goodell, hey, we think this is the worst of it. We think this is it. Um, there's probably not more coming. And then more does come out. So, I mean, if you're the NFL, I guess, like you said, you got to just, like, go forward with the path that you were already on. But I'm sure that there's some nerves there thinking that this could actually be worse than it already is. Because well, every and, time and- it's gone that way. Well, and we talk a lot about the number of accusers, and because of that, it's impossible to compare it with any situation in the past. Also, though, if you're the NFL, I could see a problem being, hey, well, we're going to suspend you for this long if it's 20 accusers, and this long if it's 25 accusers. I mean, that seems like an awkward conversation as well for the NFL to be evaluating that if it's truly dependent on that. In other words, hey, if you only get accused of sexual misconduct or assault by one woman, then hey, it's a game, you know? Mm-hmm. But if it's 10 women, then okay, now it's a seat. It, it just seems like that they, there's got to be more to the investigation than just the sheer number of accusers when we're considering how long to suspend him for but I do have a hard time believing Courtney that these settlements have nothing to do with the NFL investigation now I'm not saying I know the NFL's position is okay this doesn't impact us whatsoever and I have a hard time believing that now I'm not saying the fact that he settled has any impact on what they end up doing in terms of suspension. But I do think that it has an an impact on the timeline. And I do think that there's a reason that now all of a sudden Deshaun Watson is trying to settle these suits. Because if he settled 20 of them, you know he's trying to settle all 24 of them actively right now. It takes two parties to settle. So far it seems like those other women right now are holdouts. It doesn't mean that they're going to be holdouts forever. But it seems like to me, Courtney, maybe he's trying to settle all of these to go ahead and get that impending suspension that we all expect is coming to happen this season. Because if it happens this season, even if he's suspended for the entire season, it's only a million dollars because of the way he and the Cleveland Browns structured that contract, backloading the other $228 million uh, beyond this season. So it seems like to me all of a sudden, he's got $228 million reasons to settle these lawsuits now so we're suspended this NFL season, not next. Yeah, because he's already he's in his prime right now at 26 years old. He missed the 2021 season by his own doing. He sat out uh, when he was with the Houston Texans. He probably doesn't want to miss another season there. But, you know, you've got a lot of people out there wondering if the reason that the Cleveland Browns gave him the exorbitant contract that they did, knowing all of this was going on, is because they knew and they may have said, hey, we're going to try to help you here. Here's here's this insane sum of money to help you settle some of these cases. That $45 million signing bonus cannot be touched, as you mentioned, his base pay, which they structured this for a reason this way, because it's $1.035 million. Um, Any sort of suspension comes on a game-by-game basis. So if it's six games, it's six divided by that number. If it's the entire season, he loses out on very little money in the grand scheme of things, considering how much he made when he signed that record-setting five-year $230 million. Unless he's suspended next season. Yeah, there's that too. Then all of a sudden it's real money to him. for sure. Straight ahead, we will discuss Bradley Beal's future following a cryptic report yesterday and tomorrow night's NBA draft. This is Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. I'm Amber Wilson. She's Courtney Cronin. We are filling in for Spain and Fitz. 
You can always give us a call at one 729 3776 That is 1-888-SAY-ESPN. Jabari Smith, Paolo Bonchero, Chet Holmgren, find out where they go in this year's NBA draft presented by Boost Mobile. Coverage begins tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations and on the ESPN app. Speaking of the NBA draft, we will get into the NBA draft in plenty more with our next guest joining us, Jordan Cornett. You're familiar, of course, with his voice all around here on ESPN radio, also an ESPN host and college basketball analyst. And Jordan, I know today uh, is the birthday of your late brother, Joel, and he was Bradley Beal's agent. So I, I think it's kind of a, a beautiful day in many ways to start with the subject of Bradley Beal. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about their relationship. And then also this comes on the heels of the news that it looks like Bradley Beal is going to opt out of his $36 million player option. Are you surprised by that? Yeah, well, for one, Amber, I, I appreciate you mentioning my brother on what is always a heavy day. He would have been 41 years old today. Uh, he was a hell of a basketball player at Butler University, kind of got them started on their run to then becoming a Big East squad and ultimately, you know, two Final Fours. He was just a little bit before that, but got him on track. Uh, very proud in his, his late career of, you know, being a sports agent at Priority where he got close to a guy named Brad Beal, who you just mentioned. And yeah, Brad's story is interesting to me because of the time I've been around Brad, and it's been limited. It was more of my brother's relationship. But what I've come to know about Brad is, He's a very loyal guy, and he's very low maintenance, and he's not about his name making the headlines during the the you know free agency period and people speculating on our debate shows about him. That's not his vibe. He wants to go. He wants to play basketball. And he wants it to be simple and work for his life. So I'm not ready to rule out Washington in that regard. Uh, the fact that they can extend it to five years and pay money that uh, other places can't because of the bird rights, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but uh, he's a gifted scorer when he's healthy, and he's a game changer. Yeah, the Wizards, as you mentioned, Jordan, they're the only team that can offer him that five-year, $250 million max extension. And you've got to And, Courtney, that looms that, large. That yes, looms very large. That's an important detail. Yeah, and, and I'm wondering, like, you know, will he go to the Wizards – and potentially say, no matter what, I'm leaving, and use that opportunity to force his way to a certain team. Uh, we don't know that answer just yet, but like, if you can read the tea leaves here based on um, what we know about the situation, how this typically plays out in free agency, because usually it's you sign the massive max extension, and then you demand out. That's today's NBA. Like, How do you see this <laughs> potentially playing out uh, with Bradley Beal, and whether it's the Wizards or somewhere else? Well, he's such a, an impact guy. Again, when healthy, he's a game changer. And you look at some of these messy situations, and when I mentioned messy, you go straight out to, to Hollywood, right, with, with L.A. And we're not talking Clippers. We're talking LeBron and those Lakers. So we've seen crazy names thrown out, like, you know, is Kyrie going to end up with the Lakers? Is Brad the fix as another scorer on the wing that can alleviate some of that pressure from LeBron? I mean, there's always a chance there, look, to not be in the circle. None of us can really know with these guys. I mean, maybe the – Allure of Brad taking four years and different kind of money that's structured differently with the Lakers if they can get creative and move one of these other guys. I guess there's a long shot chance there. But to me, I just look at the opportunity for Brad being a family guy first, loving basketball, and being stubborn in the belief that he can win in Washington, having a good relationship there with Tommy Shepard. I just think that five, that fifth year and that addition of about another $60 million may ultimately be the deciding factor where – he says, you know what, I'm going to stay here in the nation's capital and try and make this thing happen. 
Our friend Jordan Cornett, ESPN host and college basketball analyst, joining us here on Spain and Fitz, Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin filling in. Let's transition to the NBA draft. And Jordan, you're far more plugged into college basketball than I am, but it seems like to me from the outside looking in, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Chet Holmgren is the most household name in this draft, and yet nobody's expecting him to go number one. What is the problem with him? Well, I think that's what makes it so exciting is that there's not a, a dead set number one. And as I look at, honestly, everyone says the draft gets interesting at four and there's a drop off. I see Keegan Murray at the fifth spot and think these are five guys that can change a franchise. So I think that there's in a lot of ways, they're alluring in different ways, but they're hybrid guys, they're versatile pieces, they're gifted, unique set of skills uh, that can be puzzle pieces and malleable to different franchises in those first five that need it. Chet Holmgren's at the top of that list. I, I think the biggest question mark with him is durability. We've seen body types like that. There's not a ton of muscle. His back is kind of concaved a little bit. You don't necessarily love the posture. Can that hold up? Uh, the toughness is in question because of his body. But, you know, one of the things about the draft that it always is a misnomer to me, Amber and Courtney, is people always focus on what people can't do as they get prepared for the draft and they get enamored with that. Well, this guy can't do this instead of focusing on what they can do and what Chuck Holmgren can do in a league where it's very valuable to be at a guard, a bunch of different pieces. Chuck can do that. He's an uncanny shot blocker. He can step out and shoot with the size he has and he can push the break and start transition. You can post him up as he gets stronger. There's a lot to love. And so many times it gets overthought in this process. This is what they can't do. Focus on sometimes what they can do, and that sometimes pushes you to making the proper choice. But again, those first five, for a ton of reasons, I can make an argument they all should go one. Yeah, and Jabari Smith seems like if there's anybody that would have the best odds as of right now to go number one to the Orlando Magic, it's the high-ceiling, high-reward player, whereas someone like Chet Holmgren, and, and for an Orlando Magic team that has had it dealt with injuries uh, with many of its previous draft picks, maybe that's what they want to stay away from. But I find it interesting that Orlando, in some of the reports that came out this week, is still allegedly mulling over whether they're going to trade the number one pick. We don't see it happen that often in the NBA draft. Is it in your summation, do they stay at number one and do they go Jabari Smith? Is that like the lock? Well, no, you can't say lock. I mean, if you said front runner, like you started with, absolutely. I'd put Jabari as the front runner. Uh, But again, you look at how the magic were using their guys. I mean, they've been playing the two bigs with Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter Jr., uh, the beauty of a guy like Jabari Smith is that maybe a move on from Obama, and that's maybe why they're floating some trade stuff because, again, these pieces fit in so many different ways. But let's say Jabari Smith gets thrown in there as their four, or they elect to go small ball and play him as a five. He can do so many different things at 16. He's a fluid athlete. He changes ends really well. I go back to the ability to defend, and he's so interchangeable as a defender. He can guard two through five on the floor. He's got great range. He's a very efficient three-point shooter. Shot about 45% from three for the Auburn Tigers. Toughness, again, you go back to that, but they're young guys. They'll get stronger. Uh, The question mark with him, and again, I I, I caution people not to focus too much on what they can't do, but Jabari's not much of a give him the ball, create space with his defender. He can't put the ball on the deck and alleviate that ball pressure. That's where he will be able to grow most, and if he does – Sky is a limit for somebody like Jabari Smith. 
There's always so much focus, Jordan, on the top couple potential picks in the NBA draft. And and after that, it tapers off rather quickly, and the other guys just don't get nearly as much attention. So who are we sleeping on in this draft that you think really might have an impact on the league and who's already league-ready, who we're not talking about outside of the Jamari Smiths and Chet Holmgrims of the world? Well, I'm going to answer that twofold, and I'll start with a really quick one that's going to be laughable because you're like, we're talking about dark horses that are on the outside looking in, but Jaden Ivey at four is kind of wild to me. And I, I get the, why he's not necessarily a number one guy because of who's in front of him. But the more I watch Jaden Ivey this year, and look, people will compare him to like John Morant with the, you know, they get up and down, athleticism leads the way. But Jaden Ivey loves ball, Amber and Courtney. And that's so important at the next level. Everybody's talented, but who's wired to want to be great? These guys are sick in the head. That's why they're so good because they eat, sleep, drink this stuff and they want to improve, they're ready for that life. Jay Nivey is, and he'll get better as a defender. He's so good in traffic and scoring, which is massive given the length and the speed in which this game's going to be played at. He'll be able to adjust right away. There's been questions about his shot selection. Sometimes he's not all the way engaged. I think you're going to see the best version of Jay Nivey there. He's come from a well-coached program. Matt Painter, one of the best coaches in the country at Purdue. So, that's one guy, and he's at four, so people are going to say that's crazy. I just think he could be a number one guy. He's that talented. The next guy falls at, like, 15, and that's Ochai Baji. People, again, are going to be, like, a national champion from Kansas. Again, this guy can have the impact of a top 10 draft pick. I truly believe that. He's got the body. He's ready to, to defend at that level. He can be a shutdown defender. He throws darts from the three-point line. He's incredibly efficient there. He's strong with the basketball. He's incredibly athletic. Ochai Abaji is going to be a very nice piece for whoever gets him around 13, 14, 15. But there's going to be even more value. That's going to be a guy we look back at this draft and say, 15, I felt like he could have been like five or six, maybe even like a four, five, six guy in a draft. Jordan Cornett, ESPN host, ESPN radio host, college basketball analyst, ACC network analyst. You can see and hear Jordan everywhere. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Amber, Courtney, I really appreciate it. My wife would hate me if I didn't say hello to you both for her before I go. So please tell her hello. Yes, please tell Shay hello for us. I'm working with her on on Sunday. Uh, So tune in for game day as I'm filling in for Jordan Cornette, actually. Coming up next, though, uh, Live Golf keeps grabbing stars away from the PGA Tour. We'll get into that. This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin filling in on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive can protect your home, auto, boat, motorcycle, ATV, RV, and more. In short, a whole lot of things. Bundled today at Progressive.com. So there is a lot of tumultuary in the world of golf, Courtney Cronin. And the plot thickens, frankly, when we're talking about the Live Golf Tour. Brooks Kepka has now withdrawn from this week's Travelers Championship. And the PGA has acknowledged that Kepka is leaving the PGA Tour. Kepka, at 32 years old, is one of the highest profile players now to join the breakaway circuit, which is, of course, being funded by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. It's also fronted by two-time Open winner Greg Norman. Live Golf has officially announced Kepka joining it. So now, Courtney, we're up to eight of the top 50 players in the world 
uh, members now of Live Golf. Bryson DeChambeau, he's ranked 30th in the world. Patrick Reed, 38th in the world. Kepka is ranked 19th in the world. So we're actually getting some young, high-profile golfers. And that's a significant change, Courtney, because it was one thing when we're talking about the older guys on the back end of their careers that, fine, are chasing the bag, frankly, and have won the majors. And so they're probably not going to have a hard time even if live golf events and we'll get into that in a second don't account towards the points to get into majors at some point they'll still have those infights that's one thing when we're talking about those guys when we're talking about young high profile golfers who are right now the face of golf at the height of their game joining live golf now it feels like a different game we're playing yeah it's not just that you're getting someone like taylor gooch who i mean unless you're watching the PGA Tour every every weekend and every major, um, you don't know that name the way you know a name like Brooks Kepka. And this is a lot of go- there's a lot of goalpost moving going on here, as there has been from the beginning of June to where we are three weeks later, where the PGA Tour is like, well, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to suspend players. You can never play in another PGA tournament for the rest of your life if you go and play for live. Well, now they see the amount of money that is enticing all of these other players that, you know, at one point, Brooks Kepka, as of like 72 hours before he ends up defecting going to live, says he won't go to live. Um, they're worried about that happening twofold, tenfold, twentyfold, because they can't afford to lose their top players. You said it. Eight of 50 pl- of the top players have now gone to live golf. They don't want that number to double in size, and I feel like – They're walking a very fine line here because while you do have the Rory McIlroys, the Colin Morikawas, those star players coming out and speaking out against Live Golf and, you know, in in the case of Rory McIlroy, you know, talking down to to some of his fellow golfers and and saying – things that we all kind of think about why some of these players have left they themselves have not ruled it out and said I will never join that like money talks and it's very clearly loud with a lot of these players because the purses keep getting bigger and bigger and you know just the guaranteed money keeps getting bigger and bigger to entice these players to go over so I think golf is realizing it might not take that much more to get a, a lot of our big names to go over there and that's why all of a sudden Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA, is starting to change some of the rules and, and restructure what the calendar year schedule looks like for golf and talking about how eight tournaments next year will see a significant increase in the purse and that a lot of that money is going to become guaranteed. They're, they're stealing you know, a lot of notes out of the playbook that Liv is using right now and, and just trying to compete. Yeah, we got the news that the most significant response that we've gotten from the PGA Tour today, that there are going to be, like Courtney said, significant changes to even the calendar starting in 2024. And we got this news from Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour today, on the heels of that Kepka news. The PGA Tour obviously recognizing that they have to try to do something here to keep these golfers. They could not keep Brooks Kepka, though. Although it sounded very much like they were going to keep him just a matter of days ago, Courtney. Here was Brooks Kepka on June 14th being asked about Live Golf. I mean, there's been no other option to this point. So uh, where else are you going to go? Live. I mean, uh, as of last week, that's it. I wasn't playing last week. So I'm here. I'm here at the U.S. Open. I'm ready to play U.S. Open. So, and I think. I think it kind of sucks, too. Y'all are throwing this black cloud over the U.S. Open. 
Okay, be quiet, Brooks, and the whole black cloud comment. But, like, you know, I'm listening to that, Amber. And when he says, well, there's no other options as of, you know, recently, does that sound like a ringing endorsement of I love the PGA Tour, I'm staying here, I am dedicated to the cause? No, not at all. So, I mean, the fact that he did an about-face so quickly really shouldn't come as a surprise to people because his brother Chase Kepka plays on the Live Tour as well. And now... You know, he has a chance to to make a significant amount of money. He's one of the top golfers in the world. And it doesn't sound like he ever really cared or was that loyal to the PGA Tour, which gave him this platform that he wouldn't have had otherwise. What I think is interesting about this isn't necessarily even the Brooks Kepkas of the world. Although, to me, that does make the plot thicken because now we're talking about Big golfers that we all know mm-hmm. <laughs> that we that are the face, the current face of golf at their prime. But what I think is interesting is if Liv does have any sort of legs here and if the majors, which are independent from the PGA Tour, but if yes. the majors end up not counting what happens with this Liv Tour towards the majors, then these golfers aren't going to qualify for the majors next year they're gonna not be able to qualify unless they've won a major before which some of these guys certainly have they'll be able to play in that specific major but otherwise they won't be able to qualify so what happens with the guys at least the Brooks Kepkas of the world have won the major so they'll be able to qualify somewhere and make an appearance still right the guys coming out of college you know or are coming out and joining the tour early on those guys that have been dreaming their whole lives, presumably, of playing in the Masters or in the U.S. Open or in the PGA Championship. Are those golfers then going to go to live instead and never, ever get the opportunity in their lives to play in those majors, which is what would happen? Yeah, That's where it, it's interesting I mean, to the, me. The exemptions are going to be the big thing that we talk about, and whether that's the PGA or the World Golf Association, um, That's the next thing that we have to find out here because what we found out today is that with that calendar year schedule, Amber, uh, that they're enacting, you know, there's 70 players who are going to qualify for the playoffs and they're going to receive a full exemption for the entire next season. So if you're doing both or you're teetering the edge, like how does that affect if you're in live and and with the exemptions? Because that's a big thing that we are not talking about yet. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what direction this goes. And coming up next, we're going to get some help with this subject matter from a bit of an expert on the matter. We will continue to talk about what is happening in the world in golf. This is Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin filling in for Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. You can tweet to us at Amber W Sports at Courtney R. Cronin. You can also always give us a shout at 888-SAY-ESPN. The road to the rematch is on as bantamweight champ Juliana Pena and former champ Amanda Nunez go head-to-head as coaches on the historic 30th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Stream the series now exclusively on ESPN+. Plus. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Bob Herrig, Sports Illustrated golf writer, joining us now. And Bob, eight of the top 50 players in the world have now joined the Live Golf Tour, competing with, of course, the PGA Tour. And on the heels of that news, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan announced sweeping overhauls of the circuit today. Can you explain what the PGA Tour is doing here to try to compete with Live Golf? Yeah, I think some of what they're doing they had planned to do all along and I think maybe perhaps now they're speeding some of it up but um, basically they're they're pumping more money into a bunch of purses starting next year 
and and also going to some tournaments that will have smaller fields, um, no cuts, which basically is a, a way of guaranteeing money to the players who get in those tournaments. And you know that's sort of the crux of of how the whole live golf thing even was able to get to this point. There's been this sense that golfers should get some sort of guaranteed compensation regardless of how they perform. And, you know, this is another way of doing it. Of course, you still have to be good enough to get in these events. Um, but they're raising the purses substantially in, in several of them to $20 million, like the Arnold Palmer Invitational and, and Tigers Tournament, the Genesis, Genesis Invitational, Nicholas's Tournament, the Memorial. Um, they're they're going to shrink the number of players who qualify for the FedEx Cup playoffs. Uh, but that means there's more money to be paid out at those first two playoff events because the fields are smaller. Um, and then they're going to have in the fall what they're calling a global series of three tournaments um, with only 50 players and guaranteed money and big purses too. So they've kind of thrown out the you know seven, eight, ten tournaments here where the money will be a lot more. And you know, is it will it combat this completely? No, but it's a you know, it's a it's a move towards trying to to show that they are aware that there's an issue. There's a whole lot of goalpost moving going on now <laughs> by the PGA Tour. So they came up with the extra money to keep their top guys from bolting. Where was this money before, if not for the players? I mean, because when you think about it, when you've got all these extra millions lying around and then all of a sudden now – it becomes part of the purse and the prize money for these eight tournaments that you mentioned. It's a little suspicious, and I'm I'm just wondering, like, where did it all come from? How do they have this extra money now that they didn't before? Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, my guess is a lot of players might ask the same thing. It's it's reason kind of why we got to this point. There's been a sense among the players, or a lot of them, certainly a guy like Phil Mickelson who wondered if they weren't sitting on a pile of cash and why isn't it being directed to the players? Now, I will say some of this has to do with the fact that the tour just entered into a new broadcast agreement this year. So, you know, it re-upped its deals with CBS and NBC and Golf Channel. And ESPN, of course, now has the streaming rights. And it's a much more enhanced product on ESPN. So with all of that, the money went up a lot. So that's a big source of their funding. I mean, purses went up uh, this year to begin with. Um, they had raised the Players' Championship purse this year to $20 million. It's going to go to $25 million. The, the elevated events that I was talking about, Tigers, uh, Arnold Palmers, and Jack Nicklaus, those tournaments were $12 million purses this year. They're going to go to twenty next year. Some of it has to do with the fact they were getting an, inf uh, an influx of revenue. So, um, you know, it, it's not all just that the money was sitting around. They, they knew planning out they were going to be getting more. But to your original question, I mean, had they foreseen, and they should have, they knew they were going to have this new TV deal wasn't just announced yesterday. You know, it, it, was, it was basically announced right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. So they, they must have had a knowledge of what kind of revenue they were going to be getting. And had they done this then – even if they just had announced it for now, it's possible that some of this would have been quelled because the, the, the Saudi money, the live golf money that's being put about now was done in reaction to them being rebuffed. 
They've way overpaid now. That wasn't their original intent. They had guys ready to sign up for far less than this. And had the tour maybe had this in place a couple of years ago, maybe it hadn't. It wouldn't have escalated to this point. Yeah, the PGA Tour commissioner called it an irrational threat today in reference to the Live Golf Series and said if this is an arms race and the only weapons are dollar bills, then the PGA Tour can't compete. So he acknowledged that because he said if you have a foreign monarch willing to uh, throw billions of dollars at something and lose money is essentially what he was saying, then it's very hard for American golf to compete. But Bob Herrig, a Sports Illustrated golf writer, joining us. But, Bob, one of the ways that I could see it competing, and correct me here if I'm wrong, is just with American golf generally in terms of the majors. If the majors don't agree to count anything that happens with the Live Golf Series, then won't these guys not actually have enough to compete then in these majors if they haven't won the major before? Like, are we heading towards a world where, you know, you're not going to get to see some of these guys in the Masters, and will that sway minds? That's certainly a risk these guys are taking because there's no guarantees that they will remain eligible for the majors. Now, I would find it very, very surprising if the Masters went back on its lifetime exemption for winners. I mean, that's a tradition that dates to day one. So are you going to all of a sudden now just say that Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, um, who else, Charles Schwartzel, those, uh, Sergio Garcia, those are the guys in live who've won the Masters. You know, going back over the last 10, 11 years, 12 years, are they no longer going to be able to play? I mean, they could restrict the qualification criteria going forward, which would make it harder. They could restrict the number of players that get in via the world ranking. Um, the live golf events don't have world ranking points right now. And that process takes a while. Like they're not going to just get that overnight. And there's some debate as to whether or not they will, you know, but a guy like Brooks Kepka won the PJ championship in 2019. He also won it in 18. That makes him exempt for life in the PGA. He won the U S open in 18. He's got a 10 year exemption for that. The, the PGA win gets some five years in, in both the British Open and the uh, the U.S. Open, uh, or excuse me, the uh, Masters. So, like, he's got a few more years. Are, are they going to go back on those things that were in place at the time? I, I would have a hard time believing they would do that. But a guy like Kepka, who's only 32, I mean, does he want to play in those majors beyond the next couple of years? You know, he needs to hope that, live golf gets world ranking points or that, you know, does he play an alternate tour that does have them in order to keep his ranking up there? Those things are all unknowns right now, which is what makes these guys jumping over somewhat risky. Now, look, maybe, maybe they don't care. Maybe the money is so great that they just don't care about playing in the majors anymore. Um, Of course, that would be sort of a disappointing attitude. I think if that's the case. Well, they've also got to hope that Live Golf and what funds Live Golf doesn't run out of money. And obviously, that's become such a point of contention. And you're right, the PGA Tour doesn't have the means to compete 
on the same level as, you know, international, you know, foreign ministers with all this sort of money that they have no issue throwing at these golfers. But, you know, to the bigger picture here, I remember last year at this time, Bob, we are talking about Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka in this fake feud between them. It was um, fake toxicity. Now it feels like there is real toxicity in golf. I mean, we heard Rory McIlroy's comments directed at Brooks Kepka today and even before Kepka defected and went from, you know, playing in the U.S. Open to now being a part of Live Golf, he talked about the black cloud that feels like it's hanging over golf right now. And I just, I know you're close to the game. I know that you talk to a lot of these players. It just feels like to me watching this that it, the air around golf right now is different. Does it feel kind of heavy to you being around it and for the players right now in the golf world? No question. This has been incredibly disruptive. Um, you know, it was a huge topic last week at the U.S. Open. And thankfully, we had a really, really good U.S. Open to sort of, you know, put the controversy aside for a few days because the, the competition was great. You know, Tiger coming back at the Masters and the PGA Championship helped put it aside for, for, for a time there because Phil wasn't playing in those tournaments. And so that sort of hovered over the proceedings a little bit until play began. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's got a little contentious between the players. I mean, Rory kind of pushed Roy McIlroy pushed back today on Brooks. You know, he, he, he expressed frustration about these guys going back on, on what they had said. Um, you mentioned the, the, the Shambo uh, Kepka feud last year. That looks kind of trite right now compared to all this. I mean, um, and, and yet that whole thing brought a lot of attention to the PJ tour. I mean, Bryson, there was a polarizing figure who, who, you know, gets a lot of interest. I mean, he, 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 he created a ton of interest just by trying to drive a ball over the water. When he won the Arnold Palmer invitational last year, he led the U S open last year with nine holes to play. He had a great playoff against Patrick Cantley that he lost. He drove the first green at the Ryder cup. I mean, he was, he's a compelling figure who's now gone, you know, and while sure he can be playing in the majors, at least here in the short term, you know, we're not going to have him in like this week's travelers tournament or, or in the FedEx playoffs playoff events, because he's not going to be eligible for them. So it's, it's a, um, there's no question that this is, has kind of put a pall over things, no matter what side of the issue you're on. It's, um, it's been disruptive and, and, uh, and, and, way more off the course stuff in golf than we're used to dealing with. Yeah, a very tumultuous time in golf. We will be waiting to see how this all plays out. Bob Herrick, Sports Illustrated golf writer. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Coming up next, we'll play a little game we like to call Real or Fake. This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I'm Amber Wilson. She's Courtney Cronin. We have been filling in for Spain and Fitz. You can follow both of us on Twitter at Amber W Sports at Courtney R. Cronin. And Courtney, we have a bit of breaking news, so to speak, on Spain and Fitz, where just about 35 minutes ago or so, the head coach of the Washington Commanders, Ron Rivera, he put up a statement on Twitter because that's what you do in 2022. You release your statement yourself on Twitter. So that's what he did. Of course, this comes on the heels of Roger Goodell testifying in front of the House Committee. Um, and he basically makes very clear in this statement that he wasn't there 
for these terrible allegations that right now are surrounding the Washington commanders. He said that basically he was brought in by Dan and Tanya Snyder in a process to really clean things up for that organization and that they worked hard to do just that. And that by the time that that Wiggins report actually came out with some of the suggestions that were made from that report that they had actually already implemented many of those suggestions as an organization by 2021. One, he's very clear. He says, quote, I cannot change the past, but I would hope that our fans, the NFL and Congress can see that we are doing everything in our power to never repeat those workplace issues and know that our employees are respected, valued and can be heard. Uh, he he also makes it very clear that the investigation predates his employment with the Washington commanders. Yeah, and I understand why Ron Rivera is coming out and putting his voice on this. I think that's what you kind of have to do as the head coach of this football team, even though none of this has to do with him. That's great and everything. And it shows that he's an active, you know, an active listener, knows what's going on. He's not burying his head in the sand and saying, let's just stick to football the way that some might. But in the end, people don't need or want to hear from Ron Rivera on this. They want to hear from Daniel Snyder. And the fact is, he's going to get subpoenaed to testify. That's what um, one of the members of, of the Oversight Committee said that they're going to request. Now we'll see. It's Carolyn Maloney. She's the, the committee chair. Um, we'll see if he, if, if he ends up showing up. He said that there were overseas business uh, things that he was that he was taking his time away from being there to testify in person and also he didn't think due process was going to play out in court you know there was a letter that was part of uh, all of the evidence here it laid forth by the House Oversight Committee against Daniel Snyder one of which uh, alleges that there was a 2000 from 2009 it was a report that was obtained by the Washington Post that accused a woman of of sex of accused Daniel Snyder by a woman that she was sexually harassed and assaulted on a team plane, and that she was later paid one point six million dollars to settle. Like we've heard about this before, this was part of the findings uh, that were revealed today. So it keeps getting worse and worse for Daniel Snyder, and at some point you can't outrun this. At some point you're going to have to, whether you show up there and start pleading the fifth, Amber, you got to do something because it just looks even worse. Like not saying it's an emission admission of guilt but him not showing up there is louder than any statement that Ron Rivera that Jason Wright the team president that that anybody could release well I I guess if I if I was Daniel Snyder's lawyer in all fairness I would advise him not to voluntarily uh, show up I would probably make that committee subpoena him and then exercise a whole lot of fifth amendment rights uh, in order not to implicate yourself further but uh, I do understand the optics of it in the court of public opinion and of course it looks bad but Courtney I don't know if there's anything that Daniel Snyder can do to look even worse frankly than it already looks which is why you're getting this statement from the head coach of the Washington commanders and Ron Rivera because he wants to make it absolutely clear that he he was not there for these matters that are being dealt with now uh, by this House committee. So we'll see how this plays out as we move forward. But let's have a little fun now. Let's take a little break from that subject and bring in our producer, Mark Morales, who uh, is going to play a little game of this called Real or Fake. Mark, what's up? Mark? Want to play it ourselves? We could play it ourselves. I'm I thought Mark testing, was testing. Oh, oh he's, there. There. he's there. Hello. I was, was going to take over. Mark I've for never even like, orchestrated real or fake, so it could have gone off the rails. <laughs> I would have done it. Well, let's kick it off here. So, number one, real or fake. 
Deshaun Watson will play a game this NFL season. Amber, we'll start with you. I thought, you said, I thought Amber said we're going to have some fun here. Oh, yeah, that's, I guess that's not fun. That's not uh, well, fun. the game itself is fun. Uh, this subject certainly not fun. I'm going to go real. I think that the suspension ends up coming down. I'm leaning now towards it. I always thought it was going to be significant, Courtney. I wouldn't be shocked now if it was an entire season long. It's obviously what the Browns anticipated and what Deshaun Watson anticipated when they structured the contract. So he'd only lose one milli of that 230 if he's suspended even for the entire season of this upcoming season. So, sure, I'll go real. I'm going to say it's fake. I think he's suspended oh, for an entire Oh, that he will year. play a game. Yeah. So, that is fake. Yeah. So, I meant fake. We're I off to a roaring start We're off to a great start for real or fake. fake here. All right, let's move on. Save All us right. next. Maybe the fun will start here for you, Courtney. Okay. So, the Bears, they'll be 500 or better this upcoming season. Courtney, take it away. That is fake. I believe that they will be – maybe a six or seven win team in 2022. They're still a talent deficient team. They're still a young team. They're still a team that's trying to figure out what direction it's going to go in. And they have 11 draft picks to their disposal now to start uh, filling some of those holes. So no, next year will be a trying year. It will not be an above 500 year. I defer to whatever Courtney Cronin says about the Chicago bears and she covers the bears for NFL nations. Let's move on Mark next. All right. So I'm a Jets fan, so I had to throw this in here. Zach Wilson will take a huge step in year two. Amber, you take it away. Uh, I would love, since you're a Jets fan, to help you out here, but it's the Jets. So ah, I think I'm going to go fake. Although I will say this at least, Courtney, like huge step? What does that mean? You know, I mean, it, like a small step might seem huge for this franchise. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, they did go out and get Garrett Wilson. They were trying to get Tyreek Hill. They're doing and taking the necessary steps to help their quarterback. I th- I'll, I'll go ahead and say it's fake or say it's real. Thanks, Mark, uh, for a rousing edition there of Real or Fake. Coming up next, a rousing edition of Freddie and Fitzsimmons. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.